Hi, moviegoers, Netflixers, all of you out there. This is the Double Back Double Feature Podcast, where I take you on a tour of two movies, one more popular and one a bit less well-known, a bit off the beaten path. Both movies will always have something in common, and today we're doing movies about Thanksgiving. So first we have Avalon, written and directed and produced by Barry Levinson. It was released in 1990, stars Aidan Quinn, Elizabeth Perkins, and the ultra-young Elijah Wood. He's super young in this. And our second movie is the ever-popular Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, written and directed by John Hughes. Uh, released in 1987, stars Steve Martin and one of my all-time favorites, the Canadian treasure John Candy. So kick back, grab a hard cider and some Jiffy Pop, and I hope you have fun. So Barry Levinson really is no slouch. Uh, According to his IMDb bio, he was born in Baltimore and started his career writing for The Carol Burnett Show and won two Emmys in three years. And he eventually did some work with Mel Brooks writing uh, on Silent Movie in 1976 and High Anxiety in 77. And he and his wife, Valerie Curtin, co-wrote the excellent film uh, Injustice for All. And it, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but it stars Al Pacino, and it has a very, very famous courtroom scene. And this, it came, the movie came out in 1979, and this is full-on, full-contact Al Pacino. He is fresh off of uh, Dog Day Afternoon, which is what came after uh, The Godfather. Uh, I, I don't think the god second godfather had come out yet or actually maybe it did i think yeah so he must be fresh off the second godfather by now and he is just acting like his hair is on fire he is a slime if he's allowed to go free then something really wrong is going on you are out of order you're out of order you're out of order the whole trial is out of order they're out of order It gets me every time. So, if you have ever seen the movie poster for the movie Diner, uh, this is, Levinson went on to write, uh, Diner came out in 1982, but if you've ever seen the movie poster for this, it really reminds me of the movie poster for The Outsiders, which starred, I mean, I think Charlie Sheen, Patrick Swayze, Tom Cruise. If you look at both of those movie posters, each one has about half a dozen actors on it. And almost every single one went on to become a bona fide superstar. Many of them were A-list stars. It's like looking at the track list for a great album like Thriller. It's, you know, every single track went to number one. It's just incredible. Uh, makes So good it makes you want to throw it across the room, really. In 1988, Levinson tackled uh, his most ambitious project to date. That was Rain Man, starring Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. And the movie took place in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I currently live, which is pretty cool. 
you don't really, unless you live in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, you really don't have the opportunity to have movies where the actors are making references to places you know or you might live right by them. For example, uh, Cruz is talking about being pulled over and arrested on Columbia Road, which I can see from my patio. Uh, I can just point at it. It's right there, and that's pretty cool. I mean, you don't really get to hear references like that every day. I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. You can check out Levinson's IMDb page if you like. I'll go ahead and post a link in the show notes, but let's just go ahead and jump into Avalon. primarily about Jewish assimilation into American society in the early to mid 20th century, specifically in the Baltimore area. But much deeper, though, the movie is really about uh, remembrance and family. So the movie was nominated for an Academy Award. So you might say, how in the world can this be considered an, you know, quote unquote, off the beaten path movie? Well, I think it's easy to see when you kind of take the movie in the context of Levinson's entire catalog, his, his body of work, this movie is probably, I would wager, not the most well-known. You don't really hear people saying, you know, did you see that movie that uh, the guy who did like Injustice for All and Rain Man, you know, you know the one about the guy who came to America, first from in Philadelphia, then he made his way to Avalon? You, you really don't hear that. So I have a feeling that uh, this movie could really be considered like a, a sleeper in his catalog. It's also really going to get lost in the Netflix shuffle. Uh, so with, with, with this perspective, I think that the uh, movie is worth remembering. And I think this also goes along with the spirit of the movie itself. So a little bit about the movie, uh, some of the plot points. The movie opens with one of the absolute most beautiful shots I've seen in a long time. Uh, the character Sam Krichinski, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Sam Krichinski, uh, he walks into the town of Avalon, Maryland, after traveling from, I believe, Poland. And it's obvious to American viewers that uh, it's 4th of July. There are banners everywhere, fireworks, lights, and Sam comes walking through. He has a suitcase in his hand, and he has this look of total curiosity and happiness on his face. He looks just totally uh, surprised about what he's seeing, and we learn soon that he had no idea what was going on. He says that he thought the lights were for him in the movie. Uh, he, he goes on to say that, uh, it's, which is really beautiful. He's totally innocent, uh, which makes it all the more fascinating. He finally finds his brother's who were there, they, they went to America first, and he finds them, and he is actually taken to his brother's uh, apartment, or I guess it's a row house. He's taken there by a man who makes his living by breaking in shoes for the wealthy. He wears wealthy people's shoes and walks around and breaks them in, that's how he makes his living. And Sam is just like, you know, this is, this is incredible. His brothers have started this business hanging wallpaper, and now Sam is going to join them. So what we're watching at the beginning of the film is 
actually a flashback, and Sam is telling this story to his grandchildren on Thanksgiving Day, much, much later. So the family is gathered around him. Sam's wife, Eva, is played by Joan Plowright, and she's uh, setting the table, and there's a huge family. She goes on to talk about how she doesn't understand the holiday of Thanksgiving. You know, they all came uh, from, uh, from Europe, now they're in America, they're dealing with you know, just being, uh, you know, surviving in America, but now they also also are uh, celebrating American holidays. So uh, she doesn't understand Thanksgiving. She says, who are we giving thanks to? The movie is full of refrains. There are several phrases, stories, celebrations are repeated. And we see the family through the lens of uh, these rituals and habits. There are at least two Thanksgiving scenes, if I remember correctly, and they take place in two different eras in the family's history, where Eva says, we never eat turkey any time during the year, and why do we need to eat it today? I guess I'm kind of that way, too, when it comes to Thanksgiving. I really don't eat turkey throughout the year, but I, I totally get down on it on during the holidays, but... I guess I just associate it too much with being sleepy. <laughs> I guess like the tryptophan or whatever. I, I, just, I can't, you can't eat a turkey sandwich for lunch if you're just going to get sleepy. you got work to do. Anyway, uh, I mentioned that this movie is full of refrains and we hear over and over Sam saying, if you stop remembering, you forget, which is a really deceptively simple yet profound thing to say. And he tells the story of his coming to America over and over again. In 1914, I came to America. Then I came to Baltimore. Uh, the dinner table is a refrain as well, which is really cool. We see the the deeper we get into the family's history, the further we go, uh, the further we move in time, the family eventually moves from the table uh, in the 30s and we move into the 40s and the 50s where people start to get televisions and we see the family move dinner from the table into the living room where they watch TV as they eat. And there's this really memorable shot where the camera is in the dining room and the lights are off and the camera is on the empty table and then it pans up and we see the family eating in the living room, totally passive, not talking, not communicating, just zoned out. There's a lot that goes on in the film that I could talk about, but the most interesting thing I really think is the relationship between Sam and his brother Gabriel. In the first Thanksgiving scene, we see Gabriel threaten to leave when he and his wife show up late for Thanksgiving dinner, and they think that Sam, who, they're, they're, everybody's at Sam's house, and they think Sam is going to cut the turkey without them. And it turns out he didn't cut the turkey, so... Gabriel stays, but he, you know, he threatens to leave, thinking that they're going to cut the turkey without him. So later in the movie, years later, when we're back at Thanksgiving again, we're back at the Thanksgiving table with the family, everybody's hungry, everybody's grumbling, everybody's at their places, the kids are getting restless, and Gabriel is late again. He and his wife are late again. So, as you know, not to insult Gabriel, Sam holds off on cutting the turkey. They wait, and they wait. Finally, very emphatically, Sam orders them to cut the turkey. And sure enough, Gabriel walks in. He's insulted. People are eating. He leaves. Sam follows him outside, and Gabriel says that the act of cutting the turkey 
was a sign of disrespect. Uh, so they're like standing out in the middle of the street, red-faced. Uh, Sam is confused. Gabriel's angry. Sam tells him, hey, the young ones were hungry and antsy and doesn't matter. Gabriel says uh, there will always be young ones and they have to wait for their family to be there. And it, at first you think Gabriel is just being uh, overly dramatic, but you really, you really get the sense, like, this is serious. And there will always be young ones, they have to wait for their family to be there. It's one of the most memorable lines from the movie. Anyway, Gabriel says uh, to Sam that, stand there in the middle of the street on Thanksgiving Day, red-faced, says that by cutting the turkey, you might as well have stabbed me in the heart. And he gets in the car and he drives away. So when you butt this scene up to the final scene of the movie, it's oh so tragic because Sam is an old man and what looks to be a nursing home and he says, if I knew things would not be there, I would have tried harder to remember. Oh, I mean, it's like, oh, right in the heart. So now, yes, this may sound like a total bummer, but the fact that the movie makes the case for culture and remembrance and family makes it definitely a worthwhile project. So since this movie deals with issues related to cultural chatter, uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll say this in glancing because I think it's important to bring uh, your whole self to art and to movies when you're watching them. And you don't want to just bring your polite self to the movies. You want to bring your whole self. So, so what I'm about to say, I say with you know total respect and love, I've been wrong before. And there are many things in life I continue to miss the mark on, but for the sake of ease, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to remember that you can't uh, legislate the human heart, whether it's in uh, politics, you know, in our civil life or in, in family. You simply cannot. You can't uh, force change to the, somebody's heart. You really can't. And that's why culture matters so much. Uh, you know, that's why culture is far more important than politics or, you know, our, our civil life. We can't retreat to the abstract. We, we have to uh, really deal with these things head on, especially if they're important. If we want to make these things important, we have to uh, make them important. If we want to make family important, that's what we have to do. And, you know, I'm saying this and I still have like Gabriel's line kind of ringing in my ear you know like there are always going to be young ones they they have to wait for their family to be there i mean it's if we could it'd be easy to dismiss it as being overly dramatic or uh, what have you but I, I think it's important i'm not necessarily taking gabriel's side but i think it's worth uh it's it's worth discussing and it's worth bringing up but you know we ultimately we have to love each other and we have to love specific people we have to do it over and over again, uh, not not just with humanity with a capital H. We have to, you know, love uh, every person we meet, and we do it over and over again every time our paths cross, and again and again with every word they say. Because you know, people mess up. I do it all the time. Say things you wish Yatna said, and well, it's not easy. Avalon is very interested in culture and our shared remembrance. In fact, that's the very heart of the movie. Shared remembering, shared remembrance. There's, you know, there's a stability in not forgetting. Not just for you, but for your family, too. We 
I guess really move into dark water when we have no concept that we exist on some kind of cultural continuum. So family is important. Family history is important. Love is important. Specific people. And this movie really is ultimately all about finding stability and finding stability in your family history. base here, but I'm assuming you know who John Hughes is, and since he's probably much more of an auteur than Barry Levinson is, and really is seen as a quintessential filmmaker of an era, uh, I, w- I won't go too much into the uh, I won't go too much into the plot of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I assume you've seen it, and I mean, it's a classic. And one of the benefits of this podcast is that one of the films is much more well-known, so I can safely assume that I can gloss over some plot points and, you know, just don't want to risk any repetition. If you haven't seen this thing, let me tell you what to do. Just, uh, you know, this weekend, when the kids are asleep, get a couple handfuls of those little airplane-sized liquor bottles, you know the ones, uh, the little small ones, you'll know why uh, when you watch the movie. Get your sweetheart or your best friend, and if they're the same person, all the better, and watch this thing. But uh, if you're sensitive to language, just brace yourself when it comes time for our hero to rent a car. Just trust your friend here. Oh, one more thing. Before I say anything else, I do want to hit you with a John Hughes recommendation, one of his more underappreciated films starring Ed O'Neill. It's 1991's Dutch. And my wife and I really enjoy this movie. And double bonus... It is a Thanksgiving movie, so make some pecan pie and give this movie your undivided attention. More people ought to. Okay, so planes, trains, and automobiles in brief. So Neil Page is a marketing executive played by Steve Martin. He's really trying to get home to Chicago for Thanksgiving, and his family is waiting for him, and they all seem very sweet, and they miss him. He finally makes it to the airport where he meets a salesman of shower curtain rings. and His name's Dell Griffith, and he's played by John Candy. Dell is way too talkative for Neil's taste, and uh, he's a total pest. Turns out they're traveling together, heading the same direction to Chicago. Their flight gets diverted to Wichita, Kansas, and because of bad weather, they have to stay the night. Dell offers to help Neil get home in time for Thanksgiving, And off we go into comedy feel-good gold. Okay, so I totally forgot that Kevin Bacon has a cameo in this movie. I don't even think he says any lines. And I just don't know how often that happens. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of movies that have directors or actors that uh, don't usually work with uh, groups of actors or stables of actors, like Will Ferrell and uh, like Judd Apatow. Adam Sandler, they typically work with the same people, um, you know, over and over again. So not counting them, how often does it happen that an A-list actor will make a cameo in a movie? Uh, right, I, right away, I can think of Roseanne and Tom Arnold in Freddy's Dead, and I cannot think of anybody else. And I'm not Googling, just trying to think of off the top of my head, and I, that's it. That's all, that's all I got. So if you think of any, 
you know, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Curtis Ruru. That's at Curtis R-U-R-U or at Curtis Movies. So if you can think of anything or if you can think of anybody else without Googling, uh, hit me up. Anyway, did you notice that the music in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the score, like the background music, is eerily similar to John Carpenter's They Live? Uh, am I the only one who noticed that? Total, you know, check it out. I know the movies came out around the same time. I think they're about a year apart, and they, I, I haven't looked it up, but they probably work with the uh, same uh, people who uh, written the score. But uh, yeah, here, so here's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the the score, and I, and I think it's usually played when something's going wrong. So this is the scene uh, where they're at the uh, car rental place. And now they live. All right, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, you might want to pause this now and go watch the movie because I'm about to spill all the deets. Here we go. The movie is fun, it's hilarious, it's written brilliantly. And throughout the film, Dell carries around a portrait of his wife. My favorite moment in the movie is when Dell and Neil toast their wives. You know, when I'm dead and buried, all I'm going to have around here to prove that I was here was some shower curtain rings that didn't fall down. Great legacy, huh? At the very least. The absolute minimum. You've got a woman you love to grow old with, right? You love her, don't you? Love is not a big enough word. It's not a big enough word for how I feel about my wife. To the wives. To the wives! Ugh, it kills me. Absolutely breaks my heart. Especially because in the final three minutes or so, we find out something astonishing. I said you were going home. What are you doing here? Marie's been dead for eight years. Oh, it hurts. It stings. Oh, all right. So he's homeless. He's a widower. So here's my question: Is this a healthy attitude for Dell to have, carrying on, carrying on the way he uh, he does, as if his wife is still alive, or at least not putting it out there until the very end of the movie when he's at a train station? Not letting on that he uh, is carrying around the photograph of his wife who has been dead for many years. So Sam and Avalon and Dell and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, they are both determined to remember. And I'll go ahead and draw a hard line here. I don't think Dell is disturbed. I don't think that. Even within the universe of the film, Neil insists that Dell comes home with him for Thanksgiving with his family, even after he finds out the truth. So Dell meets Neil's family, and it really is one of the most beautiful little endings of a movie. 
there is, and I'm serious. There, there's something about the end of this movie. It just, it just brings the heat. It has everything to do with permanence, memory, nostalgia, familial love, forcefulness of social gatherings and awkwardness. It's all there in this little succinct, satisfying package. It's so stinking good, and it's so well executed. Now, back to my question. Is it wrong or disturbing, Dell's relationship with his wife's memory? I don't think so. I personally don't see death as the end. Now, do I see Dell's behavior as normative or, um, like, the, the typical way to go about things? Uh, no, I don't. You may or may not know this. Uh, I'm Eastern Orthodox Christian, and we have a certain attitude about death, and especially the death of death, that everything Christ touched, he sanctified and saved, including our humanity and death. And you can look at a like one of our Paschal icons uh, to see the actual depiction of this, and uh, I'll leave a link to it in the description in, in case you're curious. Uh, so all this to say, I personally don't see death as the end, and we even have saints that show a particular relationship with death. Uh, for example, there is uh, Saint Zinnia of Saint Petersburg. She and her husband was uh, in the military, and he had a very unfortunate death, from what I understand. So, after this, Saint Zinnia basically wandered the streets of Saint Petersburg in Russia and became like a street person. And she wore her husband's clothes and would say that it wasn't him who died, but her. All the while, she was performing good deeds in secret and even performing miracles. So uh, I'll leave a link uh, to her life in the description as well, uh, just in case you're curious again. Anyway, so the point of all this being is, uh, you know, we bring us, you know, the viewers, we bring our particular view of death uh, to the movie, and our relationship with death can inform how we live our life and how we read this movie, obviously. So if we choose to forget death, well, we can live as if death doesn't exist. What would our life look like? If we lived knowing that we'll die someday and that we'd better had to get to the business of loving each other, what then? What would our life look like? What would our life look like then? There's so much more I would talk about planes, trains, and automobiles, but I, for example, I would want to talk about Dell's insecurity with his job. Uh, as a shower ring salesman, I would uh, talk about his pessimism, about his personal legacy. I would talk about um, meeting strangers on long-distance travel. I definitely have lots to share there, and uh, yeah. Maybe there are things that will come up in another episode. We'll see. I didn't mention this in the last episode, but I feel like I should quickly mention it here. I think of the Double Back, Double Feature podcast as a series. So I'll only produce 10 episodes. After 10 episodes, perhaps I'll continue on or maybe move on to a different series. Just want to keep producing content that is thoughtful and hopefully fun for both of us. For me, 10 episodes is a nice mental exercise. 
keeps the spark, you know, kind of keeps the, uh, gives you a goal to work with. With that in mind, I'll need your help. You gotta tell me what you think. Give me your thoughts. Please leave me some feedback on iTunes. If you could, let's keep a positive dialogue going. If you can find me, uh, hit me up on Twitter. You can find me at Curtis Movies. Uh, but I really spend more time on uh, my other account. My I guess I, I would consider my personal account. It's at Curtis Ruru. That's uh, C-U-R-T-I-S-R-U-R-U. It was a time I thought it would be cleaner to have a personal Twitter account and one dedicated to the podcast, but cleaner also translated into more work. And work isn't always fun, so I don't want to think of our time together as toil and labor. But feel free to reach out to me on either. But just know the majority of my updates are on Curtis Ruru. I also write blog posts on my Tumblr blog at beautywasthecase.tumblr.com. That's where I post my thoughts on films as I see them and other stuff. Last week I posted my uh, initial thoughts on the Peanuts movie. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Thank you a lot, friends. And remember, when it's movie night, don't let the night end when the movie's over.